Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. What's the first brand you remember as a child having an impact on you? Hmm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to cereal brands. I remember uh, Lucky Charms, uh, you know, having an impact on me uh, in terms of making me really desire to have that product. Uh, and, you know, the, the animated characters that they use to advertise it. I, I think reaching in there for the prize, you know, they always, they often, I don't know if they still do that, but they came with uh, really awful prizes that you would take the, dump the whole box out to get to the prize. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. We have a first on today's episode of the CMO podcast. It's the first time we're talking to the CMO of an academic institution. And of course, we're starting with the Harvard Business School. So today we have Brian Kenny, who's the Chief Marketing and Chief Communications Officer of HBS. He's been in the job 11 years, and he talks about what that 11 years has been like, what does the Harvard Business School CMO do, and he has so many lessons about leadership from the people he's met, he's interacted with, from the classes he's taken, and from the leaders that he really admires. Here's my conversation with Brian Kenny. Brian, Kenny, welcome to the CMO Podcast. Thank you for being with us from Boston. Thanks so much for having me. So you're on the other side now. You are a podcast host yourself, and I've listened to a number of your podcasts. It's The Cold Call, so it's HBR's podcast on case studies. So now you're on the other side, but I want to hear from you. You've done like 100 podcasts? We're about to launch our 100th episode August 6th. We're really excited about it. So what's your favorite one to date? Oh, that's really hard. Um, they're all my favorites. I know I they are. Uh, you know, for, for me, it's a real... So, so the, the setup for cold call is that uh, if you are familiar with case uh, the case method of course. Um, at, Harvard, at Harvard Business School, every class begins with the professor walking in and asking somebody in the classroom to set up the case. 
And that's the cold call. And that's the one moment that I think every Harvard Business School alum can remember vividly because it probably either went really well or really badly. And it still sort of sends shivers through their spine to think about being cold called. Uh, so the, the title was kind of a nod to our alumni. Um, and in the podcast, I actually have the opportunity to sit down with our faculty and, uh, and turn the tables on them. So I'm asking them about the case why they wrote it, you know, what are some of the takeaways from that case? So they are kind of like little mini management lessons in in a 20-minute mm-hmm. podcast. And I've learned a ton doing it. Um, I would have to say that uh, we did an episode on a, a company called ShotSpotter, uh, which is a company that uses audio technology to recognize uh, gunfire in an urban setting. And uh, a lot of uh, police departments across the country have, have been using ShotSpotter so that they can reduce the amount of time to when they respond to, uh, to gunfire someplace in the city. And it triangulates it and it shows them exactly where to go. And the reason I liked that episode, my guest was a guy named Mitch Weiss. Uh, he's a faculty member here. He's the former chief of staff for Boston's mayor, Tom Menino. Uh, and Mitch brought uh, four different recordings into me. And he said, tell me which one of these is gunfire. And he, you know, he set the first one off. And I said, oh, that's got to be gunfire. And he said, no, that's a nail gun. And then he set the second one off. And I said, well, that's definitely gunfire. And he said, no, that's a truck backfiring. And of course, I got every single one wrong. Uh, the last one was the gunfire. So uh, I liked that because it was uh, it was interactive and really illustrated uh, the power of cases to tie to relevant issues uh, in society and in business. Beautiful. So you're about to release, I think, in August an episode with Professor Santana about the Super Bowl and Super Bowl advertising. Can you give us a sneak peek or a preview yeah. of what's coming in that podcast? I'd be happy to. That That's the 100th episode, so that's the one we're excited about. That was fun for us because we actually recorded it in front of a live audience at, the, uh, at a CMO summit here in Boston back in June. Uh, and Shelly Santana is a faculty member in the marketing unit here, and uh, she was a marketing practitioner herself. She worked for American Express and uh, some other financial services brands. And she wrote a case uh, with a colleague named Jill Avery on Super Bowl storytelling. Um, and so uh, the case gets into quite a bit of the detail around just how big a platform the Super Bowl is. I think we all kind of know just intuitively it's a huge thing. It's almost like a holiday. But she gets into some data around, you know, how many work hours are lost by people who call in sick the next day. Uh, how, how many how, how many nachos do we eat? You know, how many beers do we consume? So it's just kind of fun uh, sizing up the Super Bowl in a way that many people don't often think about it. Uh, but the crux of the case is really about um, how do you effectively tell a brand story in a 30 or 60 second spot? Can you do it? Um, and then it gets into some of the more interesting issues that have come up around Super Bowl advertising over the past few years. Uh, you know, is it really is it worth the investment? Is it worth the expense that that brands go to to have that that one opportunity? And you know, are there things that you can do to really enhance that opportunity nowadays through social media and you know uh, other platforms? Can you can you take that one moment and extend it and get more out of it? So. Uh, I think people listening to your podcast would really enjoy hearing Shelley talk about this because there's a lot of great insights that come out of it and some great questions from the people in the audience, a couple of whom were CMOs that had advertised on the Super Bowl in the past. We had the the former CMO of McDonald's in the room, and he talked about uh, the campaign that they did with Larry Bird and Magic Johnson back in the day. So it was pretty cool. I was the P&G CMO who first put a P&G ad on the Super Bowl. Do you know what brand it was? 
Okay. Uh, are you going to give me a time frame? Uh, it was in the 2000s. Uh, the first P&G. Brand that advertised, you would, you'll never get this. Tide? Charmin. Toilet paper. Charmin. What was the ad? I'm trying to remember the ad. <laughs> we'll go into it later. <laughs> it was it was our first try. So, what's your favorite Super Bowl ad of all time? Oh, that's a tough one too. Um, I mean, the Budweiser ads are always fun to watch. I think people are always interested in those, and they've done a great job playing off those and kind of building on them over the years. Um, I kind of go all the way back, maybe though, to the the ad, the, the Pepsi ad with Cindy Crawford. I think it was. Um, when she was at the Pepsi machine and, you know, looking mm -hmm. like Cindy Crawford looks and the two boys are looking at her. And of course the, the punchline to the commercial is that they're not looking at her. They're looking at the Pepsi can in her hand, which I thought was a nice twist. Great recall, Brian. Beautiful recall. So listen, one more lighthearted question before we jump into it. You are also yeah. not only the CMO of the best business school in the world and the chief communications officer, but you're also the lead singer in a band called Kramer Hill. So I just wonder if you could be vulnerable for us for a moment yeah. and kind of set the mood for this podcast, maybe with a few bars from one of your favorite songs from Kramer <laughs> Hill. Put us in a, like a peaceful, easy feeling. Yeah. yeah, I could do that. So let's see, right. a, a good song to do this with. I'm going to back off the microphone a little bit. I don't want to blow you out of the room. Uh, let's see, how about a little James Taylor? Oh, yeah. I needed the shelter of someone's arms. There you were. I needed someone to understand my ups and downs. There you were. How's that? Here I am, man. Here I am. That was beautiful. <laughs> we have to get your band on sometime. I didn't license that, by the way, so I don't want anybody coming after <laughs> okay. me. For All right. All right. We have the caveat. Very good. So listen, a, a little, a, a few more questions to get to know you better, and then we're going to jump into what's the Harvard CMO do. Uh, you were head of marketing at the Monitor Group, which, by the way, is the first consultancy at P&G I hired. Oh, wow. So what was your major leadership lesson from the years at Monitor? So I, I uh, came to Monitor. You may know Monitor no longer exists as Monitor now. They were acquired a few years ago. Uh, I was there probably five years before that transition happened. Um, and part of the reason that I was brought in was to help the firm's leadership, so uh, Mark and, and Joe Fuller and other senior partners, to think about what, you know, really what was their distinctive position in a pretty crowded marketplace at that point. Monitor had grown a lot through acquisition over the years. They had picked up other sort of uh, boutique firms along the way, um, you know, some that specialized in marketing, others were specializing in the digital realm. They had a lot of really uh, excellent um, consultancies that were kind of lumped together uh, without any kind of a narrative arc that kind of explained, you know, why they were all together. And um, so so my job was to help them think about that. And through, I, I would say, through the first six or eight months, having lots of discussions with, with people around the firm, uh, consultants and partners and others and customers, um, you know, we came up with what we thought were some, when I say we, I was partnering with a Jennifer Barron, who was a, a colleague of mine there. We came up with what we thought were some really interesting possibilities for Monitor Group, a couple of different positioning options for them. But the the one thing I, I sort of took away from that exercise was that, particularly in that culture uh, at that time in the firm, the reason that they weren't able to articulate what was distinctive about them uh, was because they didn't really know themselves. Um, and there wasn't, at least at that time, 
um, the, there didn't seem to be enough of a, a burning platform to move them in that direction. So I learned a lot. Uh, it was a great experience, but came away having not really fulfilled that that mission uh, at Monitor Group. And, um, you know, so it was a great learning experience. Who is the person, Brian, who has most influenced your business career? I don't think there's any singular person who's most influenced it. I've been fortunate um, throughout my career to uh, have some some great mentors. Uh, I think that's always a key thing is finding somebody who uh, whose leadership style you admire and can emulate. Um, and if particularly if that person is willing to take you under their wing uh, and offer you guidance along the way. So I've had several people, and I, I would point out interestingly that um, my best mentors have been women um, who have you know been my bosses along the way. I think I probably had fifty fifty you know female and male bosses. I have a woman who's my boss right now, who's a terrific mentor to me. Um, and, you know, I think the guidance has been indispensable. Um, you know, I've also, I think, had the, uh, the, the good fortune, I guess, to recognize um, opportunities uh, and grab them when they've come along, um, even if they've been a little bit uncomfortable. So some of the advice that I tend to give to people who, who ask me is that if, if you're not a little nervous about a move that you've made, then you probably haven't challenged yourself enough. Um, and you know, that's worked for me at least in my career. So you know yourself better than I do. What's the most interesting thing you think we should talk about on this episode of the CMO podcast? Well, you know, one of the questions I, I always get when I tell people what I do, um, you know, everybody knows this brand, it's, it's certainly well recognized. And so a question that I frequently get is, um, you know, why does Harvard business school need a CMO? So I'd be happy to talk about that. Yep. Yep. That's where I wanted to start, actually. So there's oh, there no serendipity go. in that. There you go. My mother, so you, I think. I think my mother <laughs> asked me that question when I got the job. They ask the best questions, right? My, my mother never quite understood what I did at P&G, and that there's probably <laughs> a lesson in that. So you, you're, you're 11 years in this role as CMO and Chief Communications Officer at you know clearly the best recognized university in the world. So 11 years ago, why did Harvard decide they needed a CMO? So, and one thing I, I should be clear about, so uh, I'm at the Harvard Business School, which is certainly part of Harvard, but but Harvard University doesn't have a CMO um, in the true sense. Um, so we're all, you know, Harvard is this famous for every tub on its own bottom. So, um, I, you know, I think Harvard Business School at the time that they created this role um, recognized a couple of things. One was that um, the world was changing, particularly uh, the competitive nature of higher education was changing. Um, and as as much as uh, as much um, notoriety as this brand has, and as great a platform as it is, uh, they realized that if they weren't actively managing the brand, if somebody wasn't thinking about that twenty four seven, then uh, eventually uh, you'd start to chip away at that brand value over time. Um, and I, I give them credit for recognizing that. Um, I would say candidly that I think um, the Ivy League schools, generally speaking, were a little bit late to this notion of, of having somebody in a chief marketing officer role and, and really thinking about building the brand. Um, and the reason I say that is because I, before I came to Harvard Business School, I was at another big university in Boston called Northeastern University. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Northeastern, five years earlier, had created a chief marketing officer role. And, and a lot of schools, there was kind of a wave that sort of swept across the country at that time where a lot of universities were starting to recognize that they were in a competitive business and that they needed to adopt some of the tactics 
that businesses use. And, and creating a senior level marketing position and funding that position uh, in a way that would, would help them establish the brand was an important thing to do. So HBS you know, did come around, which is great for me. Um, and the other thing that was happening at that time was this, um, uh, I think the, the walls were starting to blur between marketing and communications. Uh, and people were recognizing that, you know, your communications program wasn't just about, you know, kind of PR, uh, so to speak. It was much more about strategic communications and how can you uh, make sure that everything that you're saying and doing and, and the face that you're presenting to the world has a strategy behind it that aligns with what the university is trying to achieve. Um, so I think both of those realizations happened around the same time that, that this position was created. So the HBS CMO, I mean, how is, what do you do, Brian? What is the work and how would it be different from say the CMO of Apple or P&G, you know, in terms of what you think about what you're trying to impact, how you, you know, what your KPIs are, how you spend yeah. your time. Give us a feeling for the job. Well, I, I think fundamentally it's not that different, Jim. Um, you know, all of the, the brands that you just mentioned, those are all great brands, um, you know, with great, uh, great stories to tell. I think, you know, what I think about my role of being, it's really about um, bringing the school to life in a way that reinforces positive perceptions about Harvard Business School. Um, we know the brand is well known, uh, but it's also polarizing to some extent. Uh, people have their own preconceptions about Harvard Business School and what the people here are like. Um, and, you know, uh, there's, every, every time something bad happens in the business world, we certainly can become a focal point for that, where, where people are kind of looking to, to lay blame somewhere. That happened a lot in 2008, which is actually the year that I started, just a few months before uh, Lehman Brothers folded and the, the economic crisis began. So I learned a lot in those first two years about the kinds of criticisms that people have about Harvard Business School. And a lot of them centered around what people thought uh, people here were like. They thought our students were arrogant and, and greedy and self-centered. Um, you know, they thought that the, the research that our faculty did, you know, didn't have direct relation to what people were doing in practice. Um, and I think a, a big part of our job is to bring the real voices of those people to the surface uh, in a way that people can appreciate that our students um, are absolutely uh, ambitious. They have big ideas. They have big things that they want to achieve, but they're not self-centered. Those are, uh, you know, they're, they're already accomplished in in many ways, and they want to accomplish more and do that in service to themselves and and something bigger than themselves. Um, the the research that our faculty does is very close to practice. Just the nature of the case method itself means that we're going out and we're having conversations with CEOs and other business leaders to understand the challenges they face. So I wanted to bring those stories to the surface as well. And I think all the brands that, that you mentioned are in the business of storytelling and service to connecting their brands to, to the emotions that people have about them uh, so that they can, you know, um, reinforce positive perceptions about themselves. So you've been in this role 11 years, and HBS was at the top of the heap 11 years ago, and they're at the top of the heap now. So you've kept a really strong brand at the top. What could others learn from you and your team and your institution about staying on top? Well, you know, I, I don't uh, claim to take any of the credit for us being on top, as it were. I think, um, you know, if you've got a really great 
product or service offering, you know, that will and, and often oftentimes do all the heavy lifting for you. And then my job is really just to tell the story. And that's what 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 I tell my team is that we're here to animate the mission of the school and the work of the school. Um, but it all starts with, you know, having a world class faculty people who are really are passionate, who are asking hard questions and working hard to find the answers to those questions. Uh, if you look at um, Harvard Business Review, obviously that is a journal of record for business and has been for decades. Uh, it's something that you'll find in the offices of CEOs everywhere around the world. Uh, and the ideas in there have, have changed the way that we all practice business uh, every day. Um, and if you you know, if you have that kind of offering, you're going to obviously attract people who are ambitious and accomplished and the kinds of students that we have come here, whether they're MBA students, frankly, or executives. We have a, a, a large executive education program where we move about 11,000 executives through here a year. Um, that creates its own draw and its its own word of mouth marketing. So now we've got uh, you know 85,000 alumni in the world all of whom are great examples of what happens to people who come to Harvard Business School, and all of whom, frankly, are leaders both in their businesses but also in the things that they're doing in their personal lives. We, we do track all of the kinds of things that our alumni do when they leave, and you know, we, we are proud to say that they're having an impact not just as business leaders but you know, as, as people in, in society. Tell me about the team you've built over the last 11 years. You, know, you came in and marketing was whatever it was 11 years ago. So tell me what you've done in the last 11 years to take it to the next level. What kind of people did you bring in? What kind of capabilities are you building? So give us sort of a sense of how you build a top marketing organization for this amazing brand. Yeah, uh, that's a great question because things have changed so much in our field in the last 11 years. Um, I don't know that any other field has been as impacted by the advent of the internet and social media as as the marketing role. And if I think about, um, you know, I mentioned the fact before that marketing and communications were kind of looked at as separate functions uh, back when I first started here. That's really no longer the case at all. Uh, they're very closely integrated. Um, but the other thing that's changed a lot is um, the media and, and the way that we work with the media. It used to be a situation where you know you would uh, establish a relationship with a journalist and cultivate that relationship over time and you know and, and invite them to campus and introduce them to faculty and, and hope that they went away and were inspired enough to write a story about you because third-party advocacy was the way that you got the word out about the school and the work that we were doing. But social media has completely changed all that. Um, and for us, it's allowed us to um, to create our own content, to to package it in a way that we think is going to be most beneficial for us, frankly, uh, and to to directly connect to the stakeholders that we know want to hear from us. And if a journalist sees it and wants to follow up, uh, which happens all the time, by the way, if they see it and they want to follow up, then we're happy to engage. But we don't really lead with that anymore as we would have done, you know, 10 or, or uh, even five years ago. Um, so the team that you need to execute on that kind of a marketing plan is is quite different. You need people who are very creative, who are able to um, to listen to really complicated ideas because a lot of the stuff that a lot of the research our faculty does, you know, is is complex, and we need to be able to take that and and translate it in a way that you know that practitioners and others can appreciate and understand it. So you really need to 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 find people who are creative and critical thinkers. Um, 
people who are really facile and able to to move between the lines. Uh, so somebody who's not just thinking about a written piece, but also thinking about how is that piece going to play uh, in digital format? You know, is this something that we can uh, use across all of our social platforms? And what would that look and feel like? So if I look at the composition of my team today, as opposed to where it was when I first got here, I would say that we are probably, you know, 70% uh, people who are moving um, in between roles. There's there's not a lot of pure play people on the team anymore. There are people who are doing multiple things, and then we've got a few few people who are definitely skill players. You know, designers, um, you know, uh, producers, that kind of thing. But for the most part, it's a lot of people who are able to do a lot of things well, and that's a, a different animal. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. I've heard you speak about the most important trait in your mind is empathy. So say a few words about that. How do you practice that yourself? Uh, how do you build that, I don't know, capability, I guess, with your team and in the institution at large? So I'd love to hear you riff on that, that topic of empathy for a few minutes. Yeah, I, well, I, I think I probably mentioned that in the context of managing people. Um, you know, I think if you're not willing to try and put yourself in somebody else's shoes and understand what motivates them, uh, it's going to be really hard to make progress with somebody, whether it's somebody who you're trying to guide and mentor or whether it's somebody that you need something from, you know, somebody that you're trying to work through an issue with, um, you know, and, and, and wherever you're working. Um, so t to me, empathy has been, you know, um, a really important um I, I guess, tool, for lack of a better word, uh, to use in, in all of my interactions with people, you know, a, a, across um, the enterprise here. Um, you know, and I think empathy and compassion kind of go hand in hand, too. I had a one of my first bosses said to me early on, you know, whenever I ask you to do something, I'm going to explain why I want you to do it. Uh, because if I explain why I want you to do it, then, you know, at least you'll have an understanding of where I'm coming from and, and the, the purpose behind what I'm asking you to do. And to me, that's, that's one real solid expression of empathy is, you know, if, if I ask somebody to do something, um, I want them to understand why I'm asking them to do it. Um, because I think that I'll, we'll both end up with a better outcome if, if I do that. Um, and it's just taking, you know, a minute to not bark out an order, but to say, let me explain to you, you know, this, th this might seem odd. This might seem like an odd request, but, but here's why I'm asking you to do it. Uh, and here's why it makes sense in the big picture of things. I also think it helps people to map their own role back to the bigger picture, uh, you know, if you're able to explain those kinds of things, because oftentimes, you know, people are, are assigned very specific sets of tasks and, and being able to plug into the why this matters and the bigger picture is not an easy thing to do. So the more you can connect those dots, I think, uh, again, the better people feel about their work. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so I guess that's my take mm -hmm. on empathy. Mm -hmm. You sit in such a fascinating CMO role and, you know, it's probably no institution in the world more important to help us think about the future of business 
and the future of economic growth. So I'd like to hear you speak, give us some hope that what's going on at Harvard is tackling some of these issues on short-termism, TSR run amok, Mm. misguided incentives, uh, a poor public image of business. So uh, I could go on and on, and and much of your faculty have written about things like this and and your graduates. So I'd, I'd like you to talk a little bit about what's the greatest learning institution in the world in the field of business and economics? What are some of the things happening to give us hope that we're sorting through some of this? Yeah, it's a constant theme here. It's something that's been talked about ever since I got here, and I'm sure before I got here. And it's something that obviously started to come into much sharper focus, like I said, in 2008 when the economy collapsed and all eyes were on business and and many of those eyes were on us as well. And you know, what was interesting, our response, so the, I think um, Lehman's folded on like a Friday night. It was a, it was a weekend because I remember coming in Uh, you know, with a bunch of emails flying around over the weekend. And that Monday morning, having a meeting with the dean at that time, uh, this was the, the, not the current dean, but the prior dean, Jay Light. And, uh, And we were talking about, like, we know that there's a lot of connective tissue between the financial community in Wall Street and Harvard Business School. And so how do we want to think about this? You know, what's our, we know that people are going to be asking us what our point of view is, and frankly, probably asking us, why didn't we do a better job you know, alerting the world that this was going to happen. And the first response from the dean was, we have to be accountable. We have to make sure that we uh, take this as an opportunity to look closely at ourselves uh, and to ask ourselves those very same questions that others are going to ask. And then we owe it to the world to tell them what we think happened here and, you know, what we think we can do to get ourselves out of this mess. And so in the ensuing months, the faculty rallied around this notion. You know, they started to ask questions. They started to dive into those questions. The whole school mobilized around kind of what happened here, what can we do to solve the the problem, you know, to stop the bleeding was how he used to characterize it, and then how can we make sure that we're turning business in the right direction going forward. And I don't say that, that wasn't done in the context of like we can fix this whole thing, but it was much more about what role can Harvard Business School playing a play in, in helping to, to start to solve these kinds of issues. And so I think that same spirit um, has existed in the whole time that I've been here. You know, right up until most recently, we had an event just a few weeks ago called Dialogue, where we invited uh, roughly 250 business leaders. These were, you know, CEOs of some of the biggest companies in the world here to campus to engage in a two and a half day session with um uh, with our faculty, looking at a range, I think there were 38 or 40 different topics that they tackled, all of which were at the juncture of business and society and the role that business can play in starting to have a positive impact on some of the challenges that that society faces. We have uh, a course that's launching, uh, actually I think it launched last year, um, that's called Reimagining Capitalism. Uh, and that's all about you know, how do we think about capitalism in this day and age? And again, what's the role of business in society? You know, can you run a business that is both, you know, profitable, but also does well uh, in the context of, of helping society? Um, uh, and, and a whole host of faculty who are part of research around that kind of topic. Um, so, so it's a constant theme here. I, I think you can feel very optimistic that at least at Harvard Business School, the faculty are well aware of the role and the important role that business can and should play in addressing a lot of the challenges that are out there today. And it does feel like we're in, in kind of the early days of a movement 
I mean, I think you feel it too. I've listened to some of your podcasts and, and your talks. And, you know, I think we are in the early days of, of what I consider to be significant change in this realm. It's good to hear, Brian. How, how about yourself personally? What, what area are you most interested in and excited about in terms of progress we're making or research that's happening? So uh, we have these areas that we call um, initiatives uh, at the school. And basically, an initiative is just an area of research. It, they're sort of topically focused, but they're areas of research that have the attention of enough faculty that we kind of put some administrative muscle behind them. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example. So uh, healthcare uh, is one of those. Um, uh, social enterprise is another. Business and environment, uh, digital. So these are all uh, areas that faculty have coalesced with a lot of energy around. There's a lot of interest in doing research and writing on these topics. We are, you know, doing events that are based around these topics. And I think, you know, as I think about the research agenda of the school, these kind of form the core of it, the heart of it. Um, those are the areas that that I find most interesting, and, and areas, particularly business and environment, which is one that I personally um, feel like we all have a lot at stake in, and I feel like that's probably the most urgent issue that's addressing the world today is things like climate change and sustainability. And if we don't figure those things out, then um, we're not going to have time to really work on the rest of the of the other important issues that are out there. So one more question, and then I want to go into a lightning round and unfortunately end this great chat. You, you're in this great job, and you see so many leaders. You, know, you see your faculty members, you see students, you see your graduates, you see the people who come through exec ed. So what can others learn from the amazing window you have on all sorts of types of leaders and how they run their life, You know how they spend their time? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, you're right. I have a window into a lot of really amazing, amazing people. I've been I've been fortunate in this role to be able to travel around the world uh, and and see leaders in action in all kinds of, of situations. Um, I would say that there's one characteristic, one quality that that to me cuts across. If I think about the ones that are most impressive and who seem to have the respect of the most people, and that's humility. Uh, and, you know, I think our dean defines that and lives that. And I think about leaders like Ratan Tata, who, uh, you know, who is a graduate of the school, who we have a very good relationship with. You know, this is one of the wealthiest industrialists in, in all of India. And when he comes to Boston, he takes a cab from Logan Airport to the campus here. And you'll see him just kind of getting out by himself, carrying his bags, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So at a time where you see uh, a lot of leaders surrounding themselves with people and, and things, um, you know, and kind of buffering themselves, I find that the leaders who, who people seem most drawn to are the ones who, who maintain their humble, their, their humility, who are humble and who are, are, are willing to listen to what others have to say uh, and really, you know, care to hear what others have to say. That's sweet. Thanks for sharing that, Brian. Hey, we're going to end this with a little bit of a lightning round. So it sounds I, scary. Yeah, scary. <laughs> no, you, no, it, you'll have fun with it. So, <laughs> what 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 do you read or listen to every day? I listen to the daily podcast every day, uh, uh, the New York Times podcast. I mm -hmm. love that. Uh, I read uh, my Apple News feed probably more than anything else. I, I'm logging on to that multiple times a day uh, to see what's going on in the world. How do you get inspiration for your job? 
Uh, that's easy. I get inspiration through the people I work with. The, the Part of the reason I've been here for 11 years is because the people here are awesome. Um, I have a terrific team, and I'm inspired to come here every day and, and work with those folks. Best book you have read lately? Gentleman in Moscow. Hmm. Have you read that one? No, but we've heard it a couple times in the podcast, so I will read it. It's really good. I will read it. I'm reading Sapiens now, and I'm loving it. That's on my I'm list. A little bit late on that. Yeah, it's good. So what's your go-to song when your audience is really worked up? Oh, that's great. Uh, American Girl by Tom Petty. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> sure. We won't ask you to sing that today, but maybe later. Uh, Am I the only person that's sung on your podcast? I'm curious. Yeah, you're the first. You're the first. You're All the right. first. Yeah. You're the first business school CMO we've had and the first <laughs> singer. So it's, it's a great that's equity. Awesome. You're the most enjoyable exec ed course that you have taken or observed. I took a course here, uh, and I was the part of the first group to take it a few years ago on digital marketing that was um, run by, uh, developed by uh, John Dayton, one of our faculty. It was an awesome course uh, at a time when, when people were still really trying to figure out like what digital marketing was all about. What's a series that you're watching now, if you watch series? Uh, Stranger, Stranger Things. Okay. You finished it? No, don't tell me anything. I'm on no, episode No, I haven't four. started it, so don't tell me anything either. Okay. So the biggest lesson you've learned as a podcast host, you've done a hundred of them. Yeah. Preparation is really important. That's what I've learned. Have, I done, my, have I done my prep, Brian? You've done really good prep. You know, <laughs> when I'm sitting across from, from one of our faculty, if I haven't prepared well, I'm going to look really bad, uh, really fast and news will spread. I won't find any more guests. It's a good lesson for everything, actually. So last question or almost the last question, who would you like to hear? Next on the CMO podcast. Oh, that's a great question. Um, so um, I would love to hear a CMO of a nonprofit. I think nonprofits face a different set of challenges than a lot of the CMOs that you've had on the show. Um, and I think those are, you know, um, things that, that people would be interested in hearing about because, you know, the job is um, is very similar in a lot of ways, but there's there are like quite a different set of challenges that you face as a nonprofit CMO. So when you hand the mantle of the CMO of the greatest business school in the world to someone at some point in the future, what do you hope people will say about Brian? Well, I guess I would hope that people would say that I left the place better than I found it. And that I was fun to work with. That's a great legacy. They're both great legacies. Yeah. So Brian, thank you. This has been uh, sweet, insightful fun, and thank you for singing for us. Jim, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Brian Kenny. And man, can that guy sing? I want to go hear that band. So that's our first singing podcast. And what I also loved about this one was how Brian spoke about the difference Harvard Business School can make in the world. Business has lots of issues, and they're tackling many of them. And I also loved about how he spoke about empathy and how important that is for him for his leadership, and for his team. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.